we are going to continue this series we're in that is just simply called Exodus Journey. And um, we are breaking up the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all year long. We're going to be going through these different books. Uh, but we're taking some breaks along the way. We have a Christmas break coming up. We'll have a Christmas message. I know that Tim talked about that. Um, 10, 5, and 7 are our Christmas service times on December the something, like the 19th. Okay. Um, and then we have a relationship series coming up at the new part of the year. We have a series about what it means to truly uh, be saved in every sense of the word from Christ. But I've been led for several years to go through the book of Exodus. There are just so much great things here. The awful thing about going through a book of the Bible instead of talking about topics is you are forced to teach and preach on really weird stuff, <laughs> things that you lit- literally would never choose uh, to preach or speak on if you weren't going through a book of the Bible. And so we're going to talk about something awkward today, um, so just embrace it. It's not about sex. It's not about money. It's even more awkward than those things. Uh, we're talking about something awkward today. And so just know as we go through these things, we, we don't talk on awkward things just to, like, just to pique people's curiosity or interest. Um, we're not trying to just like be controversial, just literally going through um, the book of Exodus. And oftentimes, if you've ever had a good study Bible, sometimes study Bibles will actually like, they'll be so great on, on resources and knowledge and information about things, and you'll get to a really, 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 really complicated passage of Scripture, and like, no notes for this. It's like, oh, easy way out. Um, we're not taking the easy way out today. And so with that, just know we're going to be talking about something uncomfortable today, real uncomfortable for, for Moses' son. Um, but um, just to kind of get yourself ready for the awkwardness is, it is Halloween, and um, sometimes we just do, like, weird stuff on Halloween. And I was thinking about uh, Halloween parties that I went to as a child. And, um, you know, I was thinking about, like, what, what kind of food is served uh, at these Halloween parties? And oftentimes we were talking about in our staff meeting this last week, um, like, sherbet punch. What is that called? It's called sherbet punch. Uh, but sometimes people put, like, eyeballs in it. Not real eyeballs, but just, like, ooh, we want to have spooky food. And that's always disturbing. And I'm just telling you a story to get you ready for the message today. Um, but the, the story that I thought about about eating gross food is that when uh, my son Zion, he was like one years old, my wife and I went down to visit my family in Southern California. We went to Universal Studios. And this was during the height of Fear Factor. How many of you remember the show Fear Factor? And uh, Universal Studios had a live Fear Factor show. And I'm like, oh, I'm in. Um, I'm definitely doing the Fear Factor show. And um, unbeknownst to me, it would, like, take the entire day um, to prepare and to get ready for the Fear Factor live show. Um, Didn't get to enjoy much at the park. Uh, But they they filled up their stadium, probably, I don't know, five to 8,000 people there for the Fear Factor show, a pretty big show that we were a part of. And I got to participate in all these cool different things. My niece, Caitlin, was there. I I, I think you remember this, Caitlin. So... um, we were at this, uh, this show. I got through all these different rounds, but the final round, uh, well, no, there's the second to final round. Um, I was struggling. I was getting behind, but the, the goal of the second round was they had, I think they blindfolded all the contestants, and they put us on this spinning floor, like the floor spun around, and we were, like, somehow connected to, like, a, I'd call it like a bike rack, and we had to try and unconnect ourselves from the bike rack while, while this whole thing is spinning around. And once we got ourselves free, we had to then run off of the spinning floor, and we had to run, um, and we had to reach into um, this giant aquarium that we couldn't see what was in it. We could only see the blacked-out thing from behind. We had to reach in, and we had to grab these, like, a key with a ribbon on it. And I was like, oh, what's this? Oh, no big deal, just a whole tank full of eels. Um, I couldn't see it, but I certainly could feel it. Uh, got the ribbons out, and then we had to run to a front table, which before they started spinning us around, on the front table were all of these blenders, and in the blenders they had put um, curdled milk is one of the things I remember they had put in. I I remember soda, um, but what I remember more than anything was uh, live cockroaches, and I also remember live worms being put into the blender and then blended up 
And the goal was whoever freed themselves from the spinning contraption, reached in to the eel tank to pull out a key, had to then rush over and drink this entire large cup of cockroach worm curdled milk. And I don't remember what else was in there. It wasn't pretty. What was that? Uh, Really bad stuff. And I had gotten behind on the spinning part, and I knew, like, oh, you know, it all comes down to drinking the cockroaches and the worms. And I got up there, and um, everybody else was just like, oh, I could just barely. And I just was like, goop. And, and, I, and I, I kid no one, I felt cockroach moving in my mouth. No, there's no joke at all. And uh, needless to say, Even though I got first place in that, I lost the entire game. Did it for nothing. The other guy cheated. And um, I won a 20-ounce Coke. (laughs) And the person person who got first place literally just won a Universal Studios T-shirt. It was like the worst prize of all time. I was sick for the rest of the day. Uh, Cockroach moving in my stomach. So nauseous. I had my soda. It didn't make me feel better. Let's get into our message today. Okay, so we've been introduced to Moses, right? You with me? Introduced to Moses. Uh, Moses was an Israelite raised as an Egyptian, uh, raised in the house of Pharaoh, and at 40 years old, he kills an Egyptian slave taskmaster who's abusing an Israelite slave. Uh, He flees to the land of Midian uh, to avoid punishment from the Egyptians, and when he is there, Uh, He marries a woman named Zipporah. Um, He has, we would learn through this, two sons. And then we pick up the story 40 years later at 80 years old. uh, Moses is tending uh, his household's flock on Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, he has this encounter with God. God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. And God calls Moses um, to go back to Egypt where he was raised. Um, to address the leaders of the Israelites and to confront the Pharaoh and request that the Pharaoh let the people of Israel go from slavery. It's a little more complicated than that, but this is the summary of this event so far. Moses um, questions God. We actually don't know what Moses does or doesn't know of God. And Moses says, basically, like, is this for real? And God says, yes, you'll know it's real when it happens. Not so comforting to Moses. You'll know it's real when it happens. Um, Moses is like, and? And God says, tell them uh, who sent you. Tell them that I am sent you. That is uh, the name of our God, the God of creation, the God of Scripture, the God of Judaism, the God of Christianity, Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, tell them that I am sent you. And Moses is like, but how will they believe me? And God says, perform these signs and miracles and wonders in front of them and see if they believe you. And Moses says, how will they believe me? I'm not capable of speaking before the leaders of the people. I'm not capable of speaking before the Pharaoh. What am I supposed to do? Send somebody else. So God gets very angry with Moses and says, okay, I will send your brother Aaron. He will meet you in the wilderness on your way back to Egypt, and you will speak to him what I speak to you, and he will speak to the leaders of Israel, and he will speak to Pharaoh, and it becomes this complicated game of telephone. And we pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 18. Um, If you're watching online today, All the verses will be on the screen there in front of you. And then if you're in-house, we have the verses on the screens behind you and on our app that's FC Online. So we're going to be looking through the rest of Exodus 4 uh, minus the the last little section. So Exodus 4.18, it says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And so Moses is like, Okay, I'm in. Aaron's going to talk. I'll do the signs and wonders. I'll talk to the people with Aaron. I'll talk to the Pharaoh with Aaron. We'll see what happens. And he is doing something here that is showing respect to his father-in-law, Jethro, requesting that he take uh, his daughter and his grandchildren uh, to go with their father and their husband, his son-in-law, Moses, back to Egypt. And 
um, you're going to see that this story in particular has radical parallels throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, I'll point out a few. First of all, this is very reminiscent of Jacob, Moses' ancestor, asking his father-in-law, Laban, if he could leave with Rachel and Leah, and Laban continually tricking Jacob into staying. But unlike Laban here, Jethro gives Moses the blessing to go. I don't know if you've noticed that parallel before, but it's like a reversal of what happened to his ancestor. Um, Something else to point out real quickly, did you notice that Moses did not tell the truth when he asks if he can leave? He doesn't say, Jethro, I'm taking your daughter, my wife, your grandchildren, my sons. I am taking them back to Egypt because I am going to confront the most powerful dictator on planet Earth and request that he let my people go that I'm technically a part of to be freed from slavery so that we could go to a land that was promised to us about 500 years ago. Did you notice he didn't say that? He just said, I want to see if my brothers are alive. One, he already knows his brother's alive. Two, he's not telling the truth. Um, we don't know why. The Bible doesn't expound on this. We'll touch on it towards the end of this message. But um, do you think Jethro would have given the blessing if Moses had told the full story? We, we just don't know. One other parallel I'll point out. This is actually a bookend to the story of Joseph. You see, Joseph was the Israelite that brought his 70 family members to Egypt to begin with. And the Israelites join Joseph in Egypt, but here, 400 years later, um, Moses says, I'm going to go see if my brothers are still alive, which is reminiscent of 400 years before, where Joseph's brothers went to Egypt, and they discovered that Joseph was alive. Lots of parallels and reversing things that had happened before. Uh, The Bible's interesting. When you read the Bible, um, Don't think it's boring. Dig deep, ask questions, discover things you might have not discovered before. So verse 19 through 20, it says, The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. People were going to try to get retribution on Moses for killing this taskmaster of the Israelite slaves. And God says, You're good. They're not looking for you anymore. So Moses took his wife and his sons. Before this, we had only known he had had one son. His name was Gershom. Uh, But here we're introduced to his second son, who we'll find out later in Scripture in one other place. His name is Eleazar. So Moses takes uh, Zipporah, his wife, Gershom, and Eleazar, his sons, and he has them ride on a donkey, and they go back to the land of Egypt. This remind you of any story. Uh, This, again, parallels in the Bible. And then there's this little footnote, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Uh, This is the first time Moses' staff is called the staff of God. Likely, this is after Moses' life. Someone comes along and is like, oh, it's not just the staff. It's it's the staff of God because it's through that staff that God did great things. But we got to be careful not to focus on the object of God's miracles in which they were performed from, but instead focus on the God who did them. But nonetheless, it's called the staff of God. So Moses is going to head back to the place he ran away from, and he's going to take, he's going to the place that he fled from, and he's going to lead Israel to flee from. Um, And just before we continue, Moses could have stayed in the wilderness in Midian. He could have stayed safe. He could have stayed in obscurity with his father-in-law as a shepherd, but instead he chooses to go back to a place of extreme danger because this is the call of God on his life. But the event this is familiar to happens about 1,400 years later where Mary and Joseph would flee, run away to Egypt from Israel to protect Jesus from King Herod after the wise men visited them. And while they were in Egypt, probably for a few years, um, God speaks to Joseph in a dream tells him almost the exact same thing that God tells Moses. God tells Moses, the people seeking your life are dead. God tells Joseph, the people who sought your child's life are dead. And so they headed back to Israel. um, And when Mary and Joseph and Jesus, in art, not in the Bible, but in art, they are always depicted as riding on a what? Uh, A donkey. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that, but we could assume they probably wrote on something, Um, but here we have Moses, Zipporah, and these 
to children, we'll learn not probably actually children, riding back to Egypt on a donkey. Lots of stuff going on in the Bible. Verse 21. Um, The Lord said to Moses, now remember, Moses is expecting to meet his brother Aaron. God said, you will meet Aaron on the way, but he is going to meet something entirely different. So God said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart. That's Pharaoh. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. This is the first time we're introduced fully to this idea of God hardening someone's heart. This will be a theme throughout the whole series. But here's what you need to know. Pharaoh is so rebellious toward God. He is so unwilling to lose this slave labor that the signs and the wonders and the plagues and the word of God will actually make Pharaoh more hardened to God than softened to God. And I would state as a fact that this is what is happening in the world today. The world is so rebellious towards God, so belligerent towards God, so angry with God and his call on their life that people's hearts are actually being hardened harder so that they will rebel harder against God. It's what Romans chapter 1 tells us will happen did happen, is happening, and will happen before the return of Jesus Christ. And so God will actually allow and even make, we'll look into that more later, Pharaoh's heart harder, partially as an act of judgment. Romans said this is one way that God judges people is by hardening their heart so that they go even further away. But also God is trying to get Pharaoh to a point where he has no other choice but to let the Israelites go. But even when Pharaoh does get to that point, he's going to turn on God again and go after Israel to try and bring them back again. And so you might say, well, what is the point that Pharaoh needs to get to uh, in order to let God's people go? Well, we we learn about that point in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, and we'll see it in a couple weeks. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This is an analogy. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, he would take on this name from God, Israel, meaning he strives with God. And God says, Israel is my firstborn son. I called Israel out of the pagan nations of this world so that they could be a blessing to the rest of the world eventually through Jesus. And say to the Pharaoh this, verse 23, let my son go, my son meaning Israel. Let Israel, my son, go that he might serve me. If you refuse to let Israel go, my firstborn son, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Your, in this context, is Pharaoh and the entire land of Egypt. If you don't let my firstborn Israel go, I will literally kill all of your firstborn sons. But ultimately, 13, 1400 years later, for true freedom from slavery, God would actually kill his own son, Jesus. Isaiah says that it was the will of the Father to crush him, talking about Jesus. God would kill his own son to set free those he would adopt as sons and daughters. That's, that's you and I who put our faith in Jesus. We're adopted as God's sons. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, allowed himself to have his life laid down and die. And God the Father crushed him on the cross under his wrath for our sins so that we could be set free. But unlike Pharaoh's son, Jesus, the Son of God, would not stay dead. That's what we talked about a minute ago. He would raise from death. Literally, the thing that Egypt was all about, finding life after death, only Jesus would truly bring And so here is where we encounter one of the strangest stories in the Bible. I would say top five weirdest stories in the Bible. Most difficult and most debated topics in the Old Testament. Um, And we got to remember the context before we start looking at it. Remember the context with me. Remember what God just said. God just said something about his firstborn son, Israel, and Pharaoh's firstborn son. And this account that we're going to read about deals with one of Moses' sons. We know he has two sons, Gershom and Eleazar. 
this story is almost certainly talking about Gershom, who is Moses' firstborn son. So you're going to go threaten Pharaoh that if he doesn't let my son Israel go, I will take his firstborn son. But now Moses has to deal with something in the life of his firstborn son, Gershom. Now, when we read this story, we think, oh, Gershom is a sweet little baby boy. I can understand it. But you've got to understand, we read a story that happened 40 years before this that said Moses went, was married, and has a son named Gershom. Gershom is not a little boy going back to Egypt. He's probably 40 years old. Very, very, very young man, 40 years old. Um, but let's continue, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. How many of you have ever had a rough night at a hotel before? Um, One time my wife and I driving um, down to Southern California, don't stop in Sacramento, but I think we stopped in Sacramento and there was like brutal fights and drug deals going on all night long. We're like trying to get into a nice hotel. Not so nice. Um, Parties at hotels going on late at night. You can't sleep. Um, sometimes you have to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom at a hotel, and you're so confused and so lost, you're fumbling around the room. Where am I? Where's the bathroom? That's happened. Um, just me, I guess. Um, so there's this, this hotel on the way. And does this average thing happen? God's going to kill Moses at the hotel. Now, some theologians will read this and say, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And I read all sorts of commentary. There's people, especially people who are like only the King James Version is the real version of the Bible. We could, we could talk about that for a long time. Ask me questions. It's not true. Um, people are like, no, the him is Pharaoh's son. God sent uh, after Pharaoh's son to put him to death at the hotel. Not what's going on at all. This is Gershom. This is Eleazar, this is Zipporah, this is Moses, and it explicitly says at the hotel, God tries to kill Moses. The Jewish explanations that happened for centuries after this of how God tried to kill Moses are fascinating. Rabbis had all sorts of thoughts and myths about how God tried to kill Moses. One of the most child-safe ones I can mention here in church without getting way too graphic is that God turned into a snake and swallowed Moses. I'm like, the Bible doesn't say that, guys. That's a big leap. It didn't happen. Um, But regardless of how this happened, and regardless of what happened, we will see that Moses is completely incapacitated. He is very visibly at death's door. Um, You can try to speculate what's going on. Is he having convulsions? Is he comatose? Um, personal opinion. I think there is some sores that are appearing on his body. Talk to me afterwards. We'll talk about it. Um, But why would God, who just called Moses and set Moses on this mission, seek to put Moses to death? doesn't make any sense. Why would God put Moses to death? He literally just called him, gave him the okay. He goes out. We have two reasons and a bonus reason why this might be happening. Number one, for murdering the slave master in Egypt. This is a good possibility. He had killed the slave master. Now he has to go back to the land of the slave master. The blood of the slave master had not been avenged, and so maybe God is avenging the slave master by requiring the blood in the life of Moses. Good possibility. Number two, possibly for doubting that God could use him to speak. And for him asking to send someone else. After all, it's recorded that God was angry with Moses. But God would not have offered up Aaron in the way that he did. And God would not have given Moses all of these new instructions just to get him out of the country to kill him. It doesn't make sense. There's a bonus reason I'll give you too. When you read the Bible, it's like, why? Maybe for lying to Jethro. He clearly lied to Jethro. Um, but it's just, that's not what's going on because... Jethro gives the blessing. He's going. He's going back to Egypt. We're about to see that these explanations aren't the cause for God's anger. But before we talk about the cause for God's anger, we need to talk about something that is just average, everyday conversation, circumcision. Uh, We need to talk a little bit about circumcision. God's covenant with Abraham required circumcision. 
Circumcision would be a practice that would set Israel apart from other nations, and it would be a physical, public identifier of who Israel was and where their faith was in. And so even today in Judaism, and much of Western culture has adopted this practice, that on the eighth day after birth, a male baby would be circumcised. And when you read through the Old Testament, you could think that the Israelites are the only ones who circumcised their children, but it was actually a common practice in the ancient Near East. For example, the Midianites circumcised their children. The Midianites are the people that Moses has now married into. But for them, it was not a religious ceremony or exercise. Instead, for them, it was a marriage rite of passage. And so before getting married, men would be circumcised, and the blood that would come from the circumcision would be like a blood oath that they would take with their wife. Everybody say, ew. Egypt also circumcised their male children. But Egypt did not uh, circumcise their male sons for marriage reasons. They did not circumcise. I, almost, I always want to say sacrifice. It's almost the same thing. They, they did not circumcise their children for marriage, and they didn't do it for religious reasons. They actually did it for health and cleanliness reasons. Um, they did circumcision a little different. We won't get into. It was different, but they still circumcised their sons. A lot of times people will say, well, God had Israel be circumcised because it was healthier and cleaner. That's not why. You could try to make excuses for that all day long. It's just not why. It was to separate them, to make them unique, set apart, holy from the rest of the world. It was an act and a sign of faith. So Egypt did, Midian did, Israel did. So this does beg an important question that seems like a weird question to ask, but follow me. Um, If Moses was born an Israelite, but raised by the Pharaoh's daughter, um, was he circumcised? Was Moses circumcised? Is it possible, because of what we're about to read, that God is trying to kill Moses because Moses isn't circumcised? Uh, Well, we know a few things. We know from the book of Joshua that the Israelites who left Egypt were circumcised. Um, That means that all of the males that were freed from slavery had been circumcised in Egypt. So some will say, well, maybe they weren't circumcised in Egypt, but we know from Joshua that they actually were. But here's what we know. Moses was hidden by his mother before the Pharaoh's daughter ever found him for three months. Circumcision takes place on the eighth day after birth. So we can conclude from that that, yes, he was probably circumcised. Number two, when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses, it says she instantly knew that he was a Hebrew. There was only one way to know. If you look at Israelites and Egyptians, they look the same, but here is the actual proof. Moses was circumcised. But while Moses was circumcised as an infant, his son Gershom was absolutely not circumcised. Because the moment that Moses' wife, Zipporah, saw Moses's, we'll call it his issue, he's dying, she immediately knew this was judgment on Moses from God. She knew immediately what the judgment was for. Gershom is not circumcised. Immediately she knew what the solution was to circumcise her 40-year-old son right then and there. And so God seeks to literally kill Moses because he had not circumcised his son. Verse 24, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. And said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. He, being God, let him, being Moses. God let Moses alone. It was then that Zipporah said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. How many of you glad you came to church today? But hey, we're here to talk about the Bible, and this is some weird stuff. We need to know what the weird stuff means. 
So a couple questions, because when you read the Bible, you need to ask questions. How on earth would Zipporah had known this? Some suggest that, well, God told her. No, God didn't tell her because that's clearly not what's going on. God didn't say, hey, Zipporah, the reason this is happening is because of Gershom. I'm in the act of killing your son. Hundreds of years from now, Israelites will say, I turned into a snake and swallowed him, and real weird stuff happens. This is not what's going on, Zipporah. This doesn't doesn't happen. Number two, this likely is a point of contention in their marriage um, between Zipporah, Jethro, the Midianite community, because the Midianites only circumcised their sons for marriage, and Gershom was not married. That's a possibility. Also, maybe Moses didn't think it was important. This This is what my people did, and... If I were Moses, I'd be a little bit bitter about the Israelites. Because here I am having to leave this peaceful life to go take care of them, rescue them because God sent me, but also because they rejected me. Because when I killed the slave master, they actually made fun of me and blamed me for stuff instead of saying I was a hero. So I'd be pretty mad. I wouldn't want to raise my kid to be a jerk like they were. And so something's happening where Moses does not raise his son as an Israelite. But either way, Zipporah, she knows about the Israelite custom. She knows the reason for the Israelite custom to separate the Israelites from the rest of the world for God. It was a sign of the covenant. You see, in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that there was a time coming where his descendants would be enslaved in a land where they would not be residents of and God would rescue them and send them to the land he was promising as a covenant to Abraham. And through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so in Genesis chapter 17, God says, here's your part of the covenant, Abraham. Every male son gets circumcised. You do your part as an act of faith. I'll do my part as an act of salvation. So we don't ultimately know why Moses did not circumcise his son, but we do know that Zipporah knew that this was the only way to stop God from killing Moses. And so she does it. She does what her husband failed to do, um, circumcises her son. And she touches Moses' feet uh, with the foreskin of of her son. This doesn't make any sense. Um, The Hebrew word for feet um, in the phrase used is also the exact same word used for genitals. Um, Some English translations of the Bible have actually changed feet because it doesn't make sense and turns it into the other word. So what's going on? This is bizarre. Like, why, why does she touch Moses with this bloody thing, she calls it? Number one, some, some uh, commentators say, well, Moses wasn't circumcised. And so the reason she does this is because if she circumcises her son and then touches Moses, it will be like God will accept Moses as being circumcised. That's not what's happening. She could have, she could have circumcised Moses. And we've already made pretty clear Moses was also circumcised. But here is what is much more likely is happening. You see, Zipporah had to resort to doing the circumcision herself. And by touching Moses in this way, what she's actually doing is she is asking God to receive this circumcision on Moses' behalf. And this is most certainly why. Because the second that she touched him, he let Moses alone. And then she makes this weird phrase, you surely are a bridegroom of blood to me. Um, no one knows exactly what's happening. Some believe that she is stating, just like in my culture, this is a marriage ceremony. Now we are bonded together in the way that the Midianites do. I don't think that's what's happening. Some people would also say that she is so disgusted that she had to do this for her husband that one way to translate it, and it does work out in English, is she's saying, you're a bloody husband. This is disgusting. I had to do this. I don't think that's what's happening either. It seems to be that she is saying, because we did this and I did this bloody, disgusting thing, God has brought you back to me and you're now a bridegroom of blood through this act of sacrifice and blood. You're my husband again. And so, what was she doing? Moses comes too. He goes and he meets Aaron and he gets back to the mission. 
Crisis averted. Crisis averted thanks to quick thinking and a brave act by Zipporah. So let's wrap this up, and we'll see why we're talking about it. Why on earth is this such a big deal to God? Why would God take this act so seriously? You see, here, here's why. As a part of keeping to his covenant with Israel, God is going to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. He is then going to lead them to the land he promised them in the covenant. And he is going to use this imperfect man, Moses, to do it. And as I just mentioned, circumcision was a condition of the covenant for Israel. And God's chosen guy to lead the circumcised Israelites out of Egypt hadn't even fully entered into the covenant himself because he failed to meet the condition of circumcising his own household. There is no way around it. Moses knew about the condition of the covenant. He ignored the condition of the covenant, and he blatantly disobeyed. This is a sin which leads God to seek to kill him. How could Moses lead an entire culture whose identifying mark was circumcision if he hadn't even circumcised his own son? We would call Moses a what? A hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. He's not going to do this to his own son, and he's going to lead us. Circumcision, it seems weird to us, but it was a big deal to Israel. How could Moses lead slaves to freedom if he'd chosen not to fully participate in the thing that freedom required, which was faith? Faith, the very thing that circumcision symbolized. I mentioned baptism when we started this because baptism is Christian circumcision. Circumcision is what set Israel apart from the rest of the world. Baptism is what sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. It's a public declaration that people would see and celebrate. I have been baptized, and I now associate with the death and the life of Jesus Christ. So if Moses was going to lead his people to freedom, he'd have to live in freedom himself. If Moses was going to call people out of slavery, he'd have to take care of the sin in his house. And if Moses was going to lead a nation, he'd need to get his house in order. And so God stops him literally dead in his tracks, ensuring he wouldn't take one step further unless the thing was taken care of first. And thankfully, Moses' wife does for him what he did not and refused to do. How many of you guys are thankful, if you're married, thankful for wives who do for us what we're too dumb to do ourselves? And this is not like, sometimes we'll try to make this like a sexist thing, like, oh, women can only do things if their husbands don't. That's not, that's stupid. That's not true. Men and women both can do great things. Men and women are created equal in value and worth before God. Yes, men and women have some different roles to play in the family and some in the church, but men and women are capable of the same things, are called to do the same things, but yet they have unique things that make them different that only men and women can do. This is not something like, well, the only reason Zipporah is a leader is because God had to use her because Moses didn't do what he was called. No, Zipporah just was a leader. She was a godly woman, even though we don't know her relationship with God because of her Midianite heritage. Here she fully is like, God, I'm going to submit to you because I'm a leader. I'm going to do it. Yes, my husband wouldn't do it. He should have done it, but I'm stepping out in faith with this brave and bold act. So we're literally going through Exodus. We're not skipping anything. Why even go here? Well, one, we're just not going to skip the Bible. Here's our application. Please listen carefully. You cannot go forward in freedom unless you cut off the things in your life that are not supposed to be there. You can't move forward in freedom unless you cut out the things in your life that get in the way. You can't move toward the blessings of the promised land unless you're moving away from disobedience. 
You can't move toward the promised land unless you're moving toward obedience. This was just simply an act of disobedience. That's it. Not an act of neglect. It's not just like he forgot because God wouldn't have sought to kill him. This was a blatant act in his past of disobedience that he had never taken care of before. You can't move toward blessing unless you take care of the disobedience in your past and start moving towards obedience. You can't fully focus on what God has for you unless you get your house in order. This doesn't mean your kids are perfect, your grandkids are perfect, your marriage is perfect, but it means that you're doing what you can with what God's given you and you're relying on community, you're relying on reaching out, getting help, getting counsel, getting people in to help you when you can't help your own family. You need to get your house in order if you want to focus on what God has for you. Now here is an instance where men and women are a little different. And for whatever reason, God made them different in this way. And so this part is for men. Men, you are responsible for your house. You are responsible for your wife. You are responsible for your children. You are responsible before God for your household. So make sure your kids are in church. Make sure your kids know the Bible. Make sure that you lead by example. So men, husbands, dads, single dads, let your kids, if you're married, see you love your wife. Let your kids see you serve. Let your kids see you work hard. Let your kids see you enjoy life. Let your kids see you give. Let your kids see you pray. Let your kids see you worship. You don't have any excuses if you don't. You're not too busy. You're, you're, you're not too important to do these things with your wife, with your kids, and before God. And your wife, hopefully God does bless you with a good wife if you want to be married. But your wife might not be there at just the right time to take on your responsibilities that you were unwilling to fulfill. I've seen men do this. I've seen men completely advocate their responsibilities and expect their wives to step in and do it. No, that's not God's way. Sometimes a woman will step in. A wife will step in and do it. but She shouldn't have to. She's got her own leadership. She's got her own things going on. And women, I have found, are much stronger than men and can do some phenomenal things, but men are called to do this thing, to lead their family. And for whatever reason, Moses was not willing to lead his family in this way. And I do want to make just a little side note. Um, Christians and non-Jews and circumcision, uh, Christian households do not need to circumcise their sons. We're, We're not Israelites. That's not a sign of the covenant. Baptism is. And so that's a decision you make with your spouse and you make with medical providers. Just to be very clear, this is about sin. This is about not taking care of your house. This is about not taking care of things in your lives. And and women, it's about not taking care of things in your heart, in your life, that God's called you to take care of. And you can't move forward because you haven't cut something out. You haven't left disobedience and moved towards obedience. So I'll read this passage of scripture. Uh, Casey's going to come up and lead us in a song before we dismiss. It's from Hebrews. Uh, in this letter uh, to you know, Israelites in the first century A.D., the, the Spirit leads the author of Hebrews uh, to write this. And Hebrews is all about Israelite law versus faith in Christ. It's a brilliant book. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, This is talking about those who have gone to paradise with Jesus in some supernatural, mysterious way, rooting for us here, still alive. It says, let us also lay aside every weight. Lay aside every sin which clings so closely. The Holy Spirit and the author of Hebrews, I think it was Paul. We don't know. But I love that he doesn't just say, let us lay aside sin. 
just like he said, let us lay aside weight. What he actually says is, let us lay aside sin, which clings so closely. Sometimes sin clings so closely that you don't even see it because it's so close. You don't even recognize it because it's just a part of you, which, which it is a part of us. Thanks be to God, through Christ, we have been set free from slavery to sin. In this freedom in which we've been set free from sin, forgiven from sin, set free from the judgment of sin, we now walk in freedom and abstain from sin. We now walk in freedom by the power of the Spirit and continuously die to our flesh, move from disobedience, move toward obedience. And the only reason we can do that is because the Spirit empowers us to do it. And when you don't do it, which you will not do it, you will fall into sin. You will have sin cling closely to you. When a Christian sins, we pray beforehand that God convicts us. We then repent of the sin. We declare that it's disobedience. We thank God for his forgiveness, and we continuously move forward in Christ until he takes us to the promised land. And so here the author says, let us lay aside every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How do we do that? He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, that's you and I, the joy set before Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And right now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, because he's defeated Satan, sin, hell, and death, because he was dead and now is alive forevermore, we can keep our eyes on him. And by focusing on Jesus, we can cut off and cut out the sin which clings so closely to us. We can take care of unresolved issues in our home. We can move forward. But God wants us to move into freedom and move into blessing, whether in this life or the life to come. And we cannot move forward with this weight holding us back. So just lay aside the weights, every weight. Lay aside what so easily clings to us. And so Moses let his son go 40 years. 40 years without doing the thing he was supposed to do, putting it off. We don't know about Eleazar. I'm I'm curious. But but he doesn't do for his son what was done for him. And, oh, man, that's heavy if you think about that. How many of you have ever stopped and did for your son what God did for you? Your literal sons, by the way, men. there's, There's things and blessings that God has given to you that you have not yet imparted to your sons and your daughters. Don't wait 40 years to do it. Give freely now. Uh, I've started to focus a lot on this idea of, of laying on of hands and praying for God to impart spiritual gifts to people. Do that with your sons. Do that with your daughters. Pray that God will give to them the gifts they need to do the work they've been called to do. But they're not going to fully walk in it unless you take care of business at home. They're not going to fully walk in it unless they learn from you how to take care of business at home and the sins that cling so closely to you. So would you bow your heads as we pray? Uh, this, this question I have is for those who say, hey, I'm a Christian. I've given my life to Jesus. Uh, he saved me. But, but Christian, what's something in your life, and we've all got something, what's something in your life that you need to cut off, that you need to set aside, that you need to cut out of your heart? Something you've neglected to do for a long time, but it, it's time to let that thing go. God, show them what it is. God's showing me some things. And as he shows you some things, here here is my response to God as he's showing me something. I was like, oh, God, yeah, I can't do that. I've tried. I can't. It's too hard. That's the beauty of it, guys. 
you, you're right, you can't. You can't cut it out. You can't cut it off. We're, we're to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who sets you free and leads you all the way to freedom. And so in the, the beauty is recognizing I can't, but he can. So God, give me the strength to do what I can't. Help me to cut that out. What's a relationship you have in your life right now you need to cut off? It might even look like an okay relationship on the surface, but it's just too toxic. What is a sin that you need to repent of? That's the first step. Repent. I am struggling with. I am doing this. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Brother and sister in Christ, here's my sin. Will you help support me? Will you help encourage me? Here I am going to a counselor. Here I am going to a pastor. Here I am going to trusted believers who can help me and carry me and pray for me. What do you need to cut out? What's something that's clinging real closely to you because it clung real closely to your dad and your grandma and your great-grandpa? Say, Pastor, am I cursed for their sin? No, but you're living in, you're living in the consequences of it. You're struggling because of it. And you can repent of it. This isn't me. I don't, this is not for me. I cut this thing out in Jesus' name. We did this at Viewpoint on Friday night. For those of you who, who don't know Jesus, the only thing that needs cut out of your life is, is unbelief, is the ability to, to not repent. You, you need to trust. You need to repent of sin. You need to turn for, to Jesus. Jesus is the one who can start your faith. He can perfect your faith. He's the one that sets you free. He's the one that can actually keep the covenant that you can't keep, that he wants to save you through his life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus said, whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. He leads Paul to write, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so as somebody who says, I'm not a Christian, I'm an unbeliever, I've never put my trust in Jesus, I would invite you today to do just that, to to cry out to Jesus to save you. And he'll cut out from you the thing that needs cut out most of all, and that's just condemnation. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He'll take away condemnation and he'll give to you freedom. He'll give to you life in his spirit. And then as a Christian, he gives you in its place conviction so that you can continuously turn from sin. And you can continually cut things out. So cut out of your life the things that ought not be there. And fathers, husbands, take care of business in your house. Take care of it. God, bless this time. Bless this word. Lord, it's, your word is strange sometimes, and there's passages stranger than this. Uh, but God, thank you that you didn't shy away from them, but you put them there for us. Thank you that this passage was useful for teaching, useful for, for equipping, and even useful for rebuke. In Jesus' name, amen.